and welcome to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about politics, the media, and the politics of the media. My name is Dan Hind, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Tom Mills. Tom, say hello. hello. I just did. Brilliant. It's all going very smoothly already. Um, <laughs> yes. and this week, we're very flattered and excited to be joined by Jack Frayne Reed. Jack is also hello. a podcaster. Say hello, Jack. You've already said hello. <laughs> uh, oh, God. I'm, I, I, me and Tom both should. Yeah, got yeah. alone and said hello too early. You come in too early. Um, it's my fault. I put my hands up. Um, <laughs> Jack, we, we should have been. We should have been following your lead, Dan. This is, uh, you know, you're the conductor in this situation. You're quite. You know, you put me in charge, and then you march off in the other direction. Um, <laughs> Jack is a a founder um, of the one of the founder members of the Real Politic podcast, um, which yes. is also discoverable. Tell tell everyone. What real politic is and where they can find it? Um, well, real politic is a podcast about politics and culture um, that you can find on soundcloud.com slash realpolitik with a K podcast. And um, yeah, we're also on Twitter at real underscore politcast, um, which is a bit, a bit of a, always a bit of a tongue twister. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we basically talk about um we well i mean we do some of the same kind of stuff as media democracy and that we criticize the media a lot but generally media democracy have a you know a slightly more kind of erudite or uh, intellectually credible manner of doing it and, and ours is often kind of say so jack we uh, <laughs> yeah. i think you're more, more highbrow than we are when it comes to culture i have to say i think that's fair oh. And I think we're sort of button-down squares, and they're they're the cool kids. Yeah, we we, we don't really do culture very much here, so um, I'm sure we have our high and lowbrow um, niches. Now, yeah, although although you guys should absolutely do an episode on satire with Juliet Jakes. Yeah, no, I think that's something that um, I haven't spoken to Tom about this, but I think it's something that makes a great deal of sense. Um, we were supposed to do this ages ago. Um, but the other thing is, Dan, I, I actually bumped into Jack at the uh, the World Transformed, and um, I think we spoke about this, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. I, I spoke to Jack I, separately I, about it, but I didn't know you'd spoken to him about it. So Jack, <laughs> yeah, Jack was, is the yeah, arts manipulator. Play here, Jack. Jack is... Yeah, no, I was, I was canvassing. I was going to all the different wings of the media democracy <laughs> podcast, all the factions, <laughs> the left and the right wing. Um, so, um, now exactly, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to leave that one hanging. But um, so, speaking of Twitter, which we were a while ago, it's not 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 that recently. But the reason we're chatting today is because on Twitter, Jack, you said that you'd been listening to far too much Nick Robinson for your own good, and that you wanted to turn it into a show, but didn't feel you could inflict it on your co-presenters at Real Politic. And Tom and I thought, well, this is this is something that we would we would be happy to 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 host. So tell us tell, tell us a bit why you got so into to Nick. Why did you become a Nick Robinson fan, Jack? Well, well, I was recommended the podcast um, by my mum. Right. Uh, she she said uh, she'd listen. That, yeah, that is absolutely true. My my mum is an avid Radio Four listener, and uh, was uh, she and she put me onto this. I can't remember whose episode it was. Um, I maybe it was. It would have been one. I think Emily Formbury. It was one of the Labour Shadow Cabinet 
Does she like? I've noticed. Does she like Neil Robinson. Like, is she like a fan of Neil Robinson? I think more than more than I am. I'd say. I th- I I think my 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 mum is quite left wing. Um, not not a sort of uh, died in the wall Blairite like my dad, but she uh, <laughs> she but she is more kind of forgiving of people from the centre or the right of politics, more more sort of personal, yeah. more personable, I, I would say, than, than I can sometimes I be. Mean, there, there's an interesting quality, isn't there, to... It sounds good, let's get on the show. Um, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, what are we doing? Talk to you, we could be talking to the main event. Um, but there is a sense that um, like BBC figures like Robinson um, become almost, they do become almost like household figures, don't they? Um, yeah. And they they're just so pervasive and so sort of omnipresent that they just become part of the um, the sort of unexceptional background of a certain sort of of reasonably settled life. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, it's on the Today program, isn't it? So, like, you know, they've got millions of listeners. Well, right, and that's the first thing that a lot of people hear when they wake up is him droning on about something. So, it's almost like they become sort of naturalised figures, which is why yeah. John Humphreys' meltdown is so. Is so interesting and attracting so much attention. But anyway, that's a whole other episode. Um, but um, so you so you got into it through your mum. Your mum was the sort of gateway to Robinson Land. Um, yeah, absolutely. And you and so which, which did you start? Which did you start your your odyssey with? Which episode did you start with? Well, I think first I went through the Labour shadow cabinet figures before uh, I, I then had to branch out. So the ones I remember listening to a few months ago uh, were, for example, the Dawn Butler one, mm-hmm. which um, had quite a funny bit where Nick Robinson is saying how uh, he's, had, he's had both Jess Phillips and Jacob Rees-Mogg on the show uh, talking about how they're best mates with each other. And Dawn Butler's just sort of like... Yeah, he's not one of my mates. Right, right. Uh, so that's the bit that stays in my mind from the episodes I, I listened to a little while back. Um, I, I remember Tom Watson in his one being terrified of Len McCluskey. Um, uh, yeah, but... They're old mates, you know. Yeah, I know, I know. They used to live together, and now um, every time he does an interview, Watson says that um, McCluskey's basically put a hit out on him, and... And he's scared for his life. Wow, that's odd. Um, yeah. So, so let's just talk in general terms about the show before we get into the sort of specific episodes. Um, we, when looking at the looking at the the sort of track list, it starts out as quite a conventional topic driven panel group discussion show. So the first mm. two episodes are. Um, there's one on global, the, you know, globalization. Is it over, sort of thing, or something along those lines? And there's a very kind of poorly chaired conversation between um, a bunch of people, including Ed Balls and, and Pettifor, about the merits and demerits of globalization. And there's one about the NHS. And it, again, I think that takes a similar sort of format. But fairly soon, it, it sort of devolves down into a, uh, a structure where you would have, like, you have a, a sort of headline interview which becomes the title of the show. So it's the one with so-and-so, so-and-so. And it's, it's usually a working politician. Uh, at one point, Robinson says, oh, they're not all politicians, you know. Um, we've had people who aren't, like Amanda Yanucci. But 
overwhelmingly, these are creatures from the Westminster Swamp. Um, and I think that in itself is quite interesting how such is the sort of pull of personality in the way that Westminster is covered that they, they, they naturally, it naturally sort of decays like an isotope from something that's about topics to something that's about like individuals of note and their personalities and so on. And I think that that's in a way speaks, speaks to something quite deep about Westminster, about how it's a, it's a place where political personalities are created and then amplified by the BBC. It's almost as though Westminster decides who matters and then the BBC is on hand to amplify those people. And so you do get Mm. Jess Phillips, you get um, uh, her posh mate. Um, And neither of them are... I mean, they're both backbench MPs, right? But they've become creatures of... Yeah, they've become creatures of significance within Westminster or within the Westminster media combine. And therefore get more exposure. And because they get more exposure, they get more exposure. And that's why you end up with these kind of, like, these hypertrophied figures. Um, yeah, it's an interesting point, actually, Dan, because, you know, if it, the, the, the simple explanation for the approach of the show would be, oh, this is, this is the world of politics, so therefore that's what we orientate ourselves towards. I mean, and actually there's been lots of conversations, you know, rightly around the BBC and, and the media more generally about, you know, we need to get beyond this Westminster bubble and so on. And then they get drawn back into it. But yeah, what's what's interesting, I suppose, is that they're, they're still um, outside of the formal hierarchies, a kind of, there are these go-to political personalities, aren't they, who, who as you say, shouldn't really on paper be w- within a sort of democratic um, system, if we accept Westminster as being a democratic system, shouldn't have any more legitimacy than any other backbench MP. Um, I mean, in the case of Rees Mogg, I think you can make the political argument that the way that Brexit is developing has made him a significant representative of a political faction, but it's not its not clear what Jess Phillips represents in terms of um, a particular faction of Westminster that's going to have an impact on the unfolding of political events, which will then have an impact on the public at large. Don't you think that's fair? Well, I think in both cases, like... You could argue that that yeah you're right. Rees-Mogg represents a, a, like a Eurosceptic faction, but why was he? Why has he become the central figure in the in as it were the the, the reproduction of that point of view? Um, presumably, there are there are probably I think there are forty or fifty sort of hardline Eurosceptics in the Conservative Party, and in any one of them could have been, as you say, on paper, um, a plausible candidates for. Um, being, you know, being prominent as a sort of spokesman for that faction. Um, presumably there's some sort of alchemy between the judgment of his peers in Westminster um, and also, like, the fact that he makes for good telly or good radio. Like, he's, you know, he's got his sort of $50 words that he chucks in and, and he sort of, you know, he sort of does live-action role-play as, as a 19th century gent, gent and stuff. Um, so he's kind of good, he's, you know, he's good content, um, with Jess Phillips as well, you can argue that she represents that kind of centrist body of opinion in the Labour, 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 Parliamentary Labour Party. It's deeply sceptical about the Corbyn project. But why was it her who became um, the standard bearer for that? And again, I suppose a similar judgment's being made is that like, she makes for good radio, she makes for good TV. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I suppose I would, I would put them in a slightly different category because in the case of Jacob Rees-Mogg. I mean, 
maybe this is coming to a circular argument here because if you're saying that media personality or media presence is what's driving this, I mean, Jacob Reese Mogg at least appears to be a potential Conservative leadership candidate, um, whereas I don't think anybody thinks that, I don't think even Jess Phillips thinks that she's going to ever lead the Labour Party. Um, but you're right, I mean, they, they both seem to be examples of, you know, uh, media political personalities, don't they? Basically, I mean, going back yeah. to like the, how the show progresses, I mean, uh, how much, I mean, Jack, you're the aficionado of the show. Um, how much do you think that reflects um, Nick Robinson's particular um, gifts as a presenter? I mean, I wonder if, you know, because I've listened to the, to the least of the show of, of everybody here. Um, is it that the early shows didn't work? He wasn't good at that, but what he is good at is being fascinated in political personalities. Well, I haven't listened to any of the early shows. From what I can see, they all seem to be from around the time of the general election last year. So presumably he started it kind of commentating on a sort of rapid turnaround of news that, that you, you get during a general election. Um, subsequently to that, I, I maybe... Dan is able to comment on some of those episodes. But, yeah, um, after that, it did become more of a sort of cosy fireside chat. You know, it's um, he, he get he gets somebody on and he sort of speaks in this very like, oh, well, you know, we're all we're all chums here, aren't we? Kind of tone. Um, and, and everything's a little bit flippant. Um, which you can tell in, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, the Paris Lees episode is really annoying to Paris Lees. Yes, it breaks down, saying, doesn't it? It breaks down in an interesting way with with that, with her in that interview. Because, like you say, that kind of chumminess doesn't 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 work. Um, and there's it also... doesn't work when you're kind of denying somebody's you know right to live their life as they want because he he's kind of saying in the same chummy voice as he would uh, with any other politician he's kind of saying but do you really think that because you call yourself a woman that makes you a woman um and it and it's completely the wrong tone to ask something that yeah. you know is going to be really an affront to somebody I think we're gonna. We'll talk. I, th- I think we should talk a bit more about about um, the way he talks with Paris, particularly in contrast to the way he talks with Jess Phillips, because I do think there's something super interesting about that. But mm. the, the first episode that we will we should look at, I think, in a little more detail, is one we've all we've all listened to, which is a fairly recent, I think, September, early September interview with Tony Blair, um, and this was interesting in part because it generated a great deal of sort of extraneous or external content because of the things that um, Blair was um, was saying on that interview. Um, mm. what, there's a number of things that struck me. First, it was like how, like, again, just thinking about how familiarity breeds a certain sort of anaesthesia, like... How easy I found I just sort of, sort of sort of listening to Blair and not really taking what he was saying because he's such a sort of familiar voice. Um, yeah, I think we should all start by saying how old we were uh, in, at the nineteen ninety seven election. I think that's quite interesting. I was uh, fifteen, I guess. Fifteen. Okay, I was like twenty six. 
Gen- I was three. Yeah, there you go, you see. There you go. I'm Generation <laughs> X, baby. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think you guys are both millennials. Like, um, no, no, I, I think I missed it by a couple of years, actually. Like, technically. Oh, really? You're, I'm, still, um, you're still Generation X? Yeah, so I'm, I, we're the same generation, I think, then. That's why we've got such a, a natural report on... Yeah, exactly. We have exactly the same cultural reference. <laughs> and, and, and Jack's just in a different universe. Jack um, is. I mean, I, I've heard Oasis as well. Like, you know, <laughs> I understand the 90s. <laughs> probably, probably better than I do, to be honest. Yeah, certainly better than I, I was. Uh, by the late 90s, I'd given up on all pop culture, I think. Um, <laughs> Quite rightly so. So, um, yeah, so impressions. What, um... Of Tony Blair in 97. Well, what, but particularly Tony Blair as he re-emerges here um, in this interview. Like, <clears throat> well, I think it... um, the, well, I mean, I have a deep loathing for Tony Blair and I think the question of how old I was then is, is relevant because people of my age in particular, and I, I, I think it was... Um, is it Chris Dillo or Dullo? Um, the guy who has a um, an economics blog was talking about this, about how particular um, cohorts and generations have, you know, these sort of formative experiences. And for people, because he's a little bit older than me, it doesn't, you know, the, the experiences of sort of political defeat and you can still remember the 1970s, and that's very different to somebody who's sort of, um, you know, comes of age politically at a time when, you know the the labor left is the the, the the left has been defeated and um and then there's this kind of vitriol around blair and then of course iraq and i think for a lot of people for blair and a lot of the people around him they just they don't seem to understand the sort of depth of hostility towards towards them on on the left and for me i i you know i you know i regard him as a war criminal at large and i that's that's how I see him, and I think, um, and I, I think that's probably a perspective of, of my age. I mean, I don't know sort of what, what Jack's kind of relationship was with Blair and, and Blairism by Jack, the time he similar. was university age. Tony Blair, similar, good I'd thing say. or good thing or bad thing, Jack? A very bad thing. I mean, my formative political memories are watching the disaster of the war on terror unfold on television screens and. Uh, being terribly worried in 2005 that my family members who live in London might have fallen victims, victim to the London bombings mm. and thinking maybe this wouldn't have happened if we didn't invade Iraq and Afghanistan. So, yeah, I've never had a... Things you weren't allowed to believe at that time. No, I've I've never had a particular. But I was ten, so I was I, I you know I I was. You had me politically educated into, <laughs> into yeah. not saying things that just completely obvious. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, you know, I, I, you know, wholeheartedly believed that. Um, and Read yeah, I think Nick Cohen, young Jack. <laughs> I, I never had a positive opinion of Blair. It probably, as I got older and read The Guardian a bit more, it probably um, my opinion on Blair maybe softened a little bit. But then it would have, uh, you know, in the Corbyn era, would have plummeted once again as I kind of got a bit of perspective and realised who at The Guardian was a reactionary slug. Um, and and so forth. Yeah, I mean, so this pop, this episode is not really about 
Tony Blair, is it? It's about this. It's about Nick Robinson and 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 his treatment of Tony Blair. So you know, we could do Tony Blair on trial for another day, but this is this is oh, a media God. show. I mean, actually, but before we move on to sort of format and the treatment of Blair, I mean, I actually thought in some ways he was more honest than I expected him to be. Uh, he, you know, he he's very, he's relatively certain circumspect but one of the things I thought was very interesting and I don't know how how this really relates to you know questions of the media and, and the BBC and the rest of it was when he was asked about the Labour anti-Semitism crisis or scandal or whatever you want to call it he was very straightforward about the fact that what worried him wasn't in fact um, you know allegations or reality of anti-Semitism in the party it was anti-Western opinion as he called it um, and he was he was very candid about that. You know, he was saying, I see this as being symptomatic of a broader critical orientation towards the West and 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 essentially not seeing the West, um, by which I suppose he means the United States and the British state uh, as as forces for good in the world. And he was also very candid about some of the intellectual traditions from which, you know, the left emerges. So, you know, he was very candid about the fact that um, you know the, the the origins of the left, the, the different traditions within the party, the ways in which you know those with which he associates have been displaced. So I thought some of that was interesting. In so far as what he didn't do was just decide to completely kick the boot in like he has in the past. Um, he sort of struck this kind of "I'm a bit sad that what's happened to my party" kind of uh, tone, rather yeah, than. Yeah. And initially, he was much more belligerent. Well, first of all, he was, of course, very condescending, and then he was a bit more belligerent. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he just seemed a bit down. Well, I think you're right. Yeah, he, was he very seemed a bit softly, defeated. Softly. He said he, he said some of his friends had already given up on the party. Mm. But he, he's not. Be the Saudis, I he's, um, <laughs> he's oh, not. they've still got Mike Gapes and Graham Jones. Yeah. Yeah. They've still got their points for it. But but actually, what I mean, his 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 he's not he's not so dejected that he's he's um, unwilling or unable to to sort of instrumentalize a certain sort of history um, in order to try and delegitimize um, the Labour left. I mean, it was very striking um, in the in like before Corbyn. There was this idea that there was a good Labour left that was sort of Benite and heroic, but had failed. And then there was a bad Labour left, which was Trotskyite and um, infiltrationist and yeah. militant. He, he tries to claim Michael Foot for Blairism. Well, he? right. Now, this is what's interesting, right? Because that was, that was then, right? In the old days, someone like Neil Kinnock would say, I've got no particular animus against people like Tony Benn. They're a legitimate part of the Labour tradition. Well, I can't abide at these... Are these trots sneaking into the party under cover of night, right? But yeah. what Blair does is say, actually, the good Labour left is the sort of Tribune, like, Cold War left um, of Michael Foote and Ernest Bevan. Um, and the bad Labour left is these kind of 60s bloody, like, Trotskyite types. And he kind of bodges them together with Corbyn and, and the Benite tradition and tries yeah. to sort of claim that they're they're all part of this kind of um, alien um, takeover of the Labour Party. Um, yeah. So he's still, you know, he's still got a bit of the old um, black magic about him, I think. I think, there's well, I think what's, what's interesting about that analysis is that, is, you know, it's, it's not without merit, because there are, there are, of course, differences between 
you know, the Benite wing, which was much more radical in its vision of democratizing society than, yeah, the old sort of oh, agree, C&D, yeah. no, Michael Foot wing. So, like, a... and and, he, and Blair knows that because he sort of comes up in the shadow of that. He wears a CMD badge when he's first elected. So, but as you say, like, he, he would never have said that in different political circumstances. It would have just been like, I think at one stage, you know, the Blairites wouldn't even want to be associated with the sort of Kinnock people who basically launched their entire project because that was seen as still being too, you know, um, too much part of a left-wing sort of Labour tradition. Yeah. So, yeah, when they were riding high, it was just like, we literally have no truck with any of Labour history, you know, apart from, I guess, the NHS or something and, you know, some some other policy initiatives. But you're right. Like there's And now, now they're completely away from power. There's an attempt to legitimise legitimize you know Corbyn by embracing all the things that they had you know he had basically renounced as a political project hasn't he yeah and yeah. the, the, the and final that was what I, I thought was so oh, sorry Dan do you I just want to say a final thing on his sort of history writing um, at one point he claims that Nye Bevan is part of the sort of um, good left the good old left yeah. Um, and he completely kind of skates over the fact that, um, however quixotic it was, Nye Bevin was looking to create a third force in the Cold War based around um, the non-aligned states. And yeah. um, this is not part of an Atlanticist... He's not part of an Atlanticist foreign policy tradition at all. No, he, gets dri- he almost gets driven from the Labour Party on the, for that basis. Yeah. Like, um, by people, you know, working with the CIA, I should add. Yeah, Exactly. So well, that wouldn't slip into conspiracy theory. <laughs> well, quite. Oh, yeah, everyone should check out Tom's article on conspiracy theory for Jacobin, by the way. Um, oh, yeah. Sorry, Jack, I talked over you. Um, you were going to you were going to chip in. Yeah, I mean, that was what I thought was so kind of profoundly unhelpful to Labour's anti-Semitism debate about Blair's contribution in that interview, because it did seem entirely, as you say, about delegitimising left-wing thought in general and making out that there is something innate to a left-wing foreign policy that leads to anti-Semitism, which I think is a really dangerous argument. It really uh, is kind of an affront to centuries of uh, of radical Jewish tradition. Um, And it's just wrong. And um, yeah, and Blair basically kind of has this whole thesis about how Corbyn himself self is not an anti-Semite. He's, um, he always is quite careful to say that, I think, in, whenever he t- broaches this subject. But what he does say, which I thought was interesting because it was a line that came up as well in, um, well, while uh, political thinking was on a break, they put out, um, I think it must have already aired on Radio 4, but it was this three-part documentary on Corbyn's labour. Right. And in, in that, um, Margaret Hodge, who's obviously also been very critical of Labour over anti-Semitism, came out with pretty much the exact line that Tony Blair does in his interview with Nick Robinson, which is that Corbyn himself is not an anti-Semite, but people around Corbyn don't understand how anti-Israel sentiment plays into anti-Semitism or something like that. And I just I just thought there's, uh, I mean, as you say, it's a bit of the old Blair magic because uh, people around Corbyn... Yeah. It, is so vague. I mean, I imagine it means Seamus Milne, as uh, everything else does. But it's, um, you know, it, it, it's a nice kind of 
it just cu- it conjures up the spectre of these reds under the bed, you know, these kind of sinister figures pulling the strings behind Corbyn, almost like the kind of anti-Semitic stereotype you see of John Landsman. Um, you know, these these people, and obviously Seamus Milne yeah, uh, is, yeah. is portrayed this way. Um, it's also that so, illusion, isn't it, of anti-pluralism and anti-Semitism, or anti-capitalism yeah. and anti-Semitism, um, which is a very, uh, it's a very powerful reactionary trope um the idea that once you start dividing the world into good and bad um you and you know and it's like well actually that's not what that's not what this project is about um but uh, yeah I mean, that's clearly... the way that they that, that they often i mean it's not just the bearers but you know it's a sort of centrist impulse to say that i mean against any sort of ethical politics or particularly any you know um partisan or divisory politics is to say as soon as we move away from um, compromising with rich people yeah yeah anything like that but it's, but it's anything that isn't policy trying to solve uh, a problem which doesn't isn't associated with particular interests you know like that that is sort of all seen as um as dangerous politics and as sort of you know one step down a slippery slope towards anti-Semitism. I, I mean, well, the anti-Semitism thing is quite recent, isn't it? But, you know, you've always got the sort of, yeah, the dark spectre of populism lurking there as well. And, and, and also, know, yeah, and the shadow of the gulag as well. So they, they, they're they quite kind of promiscuous in the, in the threats they see in this politics. Um, yeah, but it's frightening, whatever it is. Whatever it is, it's bad. You're right. And... And... and, and oh, sorry. And also, I, I think it's... It's quite transparent that you're getting this argument from people like Tony Blair. It's kind of like there is a legitimate critique of anti-Semitism in Labour, but somebody whose entire reputation on um, the righteousness of Western foreign policy, of course they're going to come out with this line. You know, it's, (laughs) it's kind of, it cheapens the argument that Tony Blair is the person making it. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, I kind of agree with you. I, I suppose I, I took the, the argument to be more revealing and less strategic because I just thought, it, it, to me, it just sort of showed what the motivation for, for Blair was, which is that, that he's not particularly concerned about anti-Semitism or doesn't, he didn't focus on that anyway. He's just concerned with anti-Western ideas proliferating in the Labour Party. And I think, I mean, whatever that means, anti-West, I mean, like, like you said, now what we're talking about here is an anti-imperialism and an anti-capitalism. And, mm. you know, OK, if he had a bit more political honesty, then he could say, I don't, I am in favour of capitalism. I'm in favour of um, an international, and he does say this at one stage, more or less, in his own language, I'm in favour of an, a global international order um, supported and, you know, supervised by American um, military violence. And, you know, it, I don't, he, he does come close to making what, what seemed to me to be more, more like his version of honest, honest arguments than strategic intervention. But, but maybe not. Maybe it was actually all a well-thought-out a well um, strategic attempt to undermine the left. But I, it didn't feel like that to me. It felt, like, um, it felt to me like Blair's honest worldview, uh, in combination, obviously, with a certain sort of yeah, strategic kind of um, instinct that he has. But I mean, and I totally agree with your point, Dan, about, um, you know, the way he characterises left history. Um, But also, I think, you know, perhaps when you are an older politician, 
Um, you, I mean, do you think it's true that you can be, I don't think you can ever be honest about your own role, but perhaps you can be a little bit more honest well, about how you see politics. Or, or do you think he still sees himself as so much of a player that everything he does is like um, a sort of big beast intervention type thing? It's way dark. That's a really interesting question. And, it's, and it sort of draws us on to like, like, why was he giving that interview then? Um, and is it like, is there something, I mean, there's something interesting about the fact that the most recent interview uh, that Robinson did was with John Major, which was again an intervention against Brexit. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that there's a sense that the inter- the interview format that, that Robinson has settled into is a space where big quote, you know, big beasts can, can present themselves in a sort of human way. By the way, Big Beast is such a Nick Robinson thing to say, isn't it? It is. Like, uh, it's <laughs> one of these things which, like, you know, like people only say if they're journalists that they're yeah. into politics. I, I, it was probably me who said yeah. that first, wasn't it? I'm sorry, so I apologise. But it's like there are certain phrases which only these people use. Yeah. You know, and it's and Big Beast is one of the big beasts of Westminster. You know, we have, um, what's his name, Clark here. It's just like nobody knows the fuck that is. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, you, you can just imagine Nick Robinson just kind of talking in the in the sort of a exalted tone just like as i wander the corridors of westminster i i am dazzled by the array of big beasts i see walking past me almost as if they're human too right i see them in the flesh he's overawed isn't he yeah he is overawed by westminster as a as a space <laughs> he's, that's his thing you know he's he's i mean i guess we should let's start talking his thing is this kind of inordinate enthusiasm and fascination with a world which in the rest of Britain is held, is held in like either a combination of sort of indifference and just complete contempt. Yeah. Um, and that's unusual, isn't it? Um, in terms of his political training, his background, the skills that he brings to his job, it, it must put you in a difficult position, I think, because he sees his public responsibility, I think, as trying to get people interested and engaged in politics as he understands it, which is how he thinks the democratic system should function. So he, he thinks it's really important that we understand um, the inner world of these people the, the, and the episodes he's putting out, the Vince Cable one, the Andy Burnham one, the Len McCluskey one. Um, so this is like, um, you know, there are now people on the left on these shows, which is interesting in itself because, of course, it would have been, I think it would have been a very different show three years ago. But yeah. it's interesting, isn't it? Like, so first of all, let's talk about how what it means to be at Robinson and, and and what his what his job is and what he, what he thinks he's achieving with this. I mean, presumably, it's a this is a form of entertainment. It's a form of public education. I think. I yeah. presume. Yeah, that must be I, right. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, but I think he's he's stayed relatively within his comfort zone. I I still think he's not entirely comfortable around people from the left. He's interviewed Len McCluskey, mm. and he's interviewed uh, John Landsman. Apart from that, he's had various Labour Shadow Cabinet MPs on. Almost all of them are um, not from the uh, factional left of the Labour Party. Uh, mm. Emily Formbury, Dawn Butler, Nia Griffith, all more kind of from the soft left. Keir Starmer, I mean, possibly not even soft left. Mm-hmm. Um you know that it's it. He is kind of going through the Labour shadow cabinet, 
and picking the most milk toast members of it. You know, he's not he's not going and calling up Richard Bergen like, "Oh, mate, I'm desperate to get you on the show." Right. You right. know, it it it's going to be like next it's going to be Andrew Gwynn or something. I don't mind Andrew Gwynn, but my point is that he's not on the left of the Labour Party, which right, is so who, no, so who, the dominant should, form of politics. Who should Nick come on? Um because well, he does I mean, listen I'm, to the show. I imagine he's, pro- he's probably desperate to get McDonald because everyone wants to interview McDonald at the moment. Yeah. But it's you're right that there there has been a um, a recognition of the fact that perhaps they should interview some people who are associated with Corbynism. But there isn't yeah. any great there isn't any great impetus to actually explain to people what Corbynism is. Um or might be, or how, how it's being contested. And most of the commentary about Corbyn does seem to be coming, from, I mean, in the limited listing that I've, I've had, it's been coming from people who are either, as you say, very sort of lukewarm towards the projects, or in the case of someone like Jess Phillips, or, you know, were, have been sort of volubly or, you know, loudly opposed to it. Um, so, yeah, in terms of a sort of mission to explain... Um, you can't help thinking you're right, Jack. He's stuck. He's stuck pretty much to his his sort of existing. Um... Which, which I think it kind of brings us back to the point you made earlier, Dan, about um, why political personalities rather than political issues, right? Why, yeah. if you so you know, he this this program is called political thinking, right? Yeah. And to me, if I was going to give us like if I was going to do a module on political thinking for students, yeah. And then I divided it into like eight lectures, one where I talked about John Major, one where I talked about David Davis, one where I talked <laughs> about Andy Byrne, one where I talked about Vince Cable. Like I'm just reading back like the, the list of the letters. Yeah. Yeah. People would be like, what on earth are you like, doing? we respect academic freedom, but what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Like, what's thinking? What, what, do you think <laughs> what is Burnhamism? <laughs> <laughs> like this is not educational like you're just talking about some people who happen to work in politics you know you can't you can't teach like um you know you can't teach science just by having a bunch of scientists on i mean it's like an interesting thing to do to like give an exposure to like what 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 these people do on a day-to-day basis to get sort of under the bonnet as well i don't think that what nick robinson done is does is is completely out of place right. it's just to just do that obviously isn't going to help people understand what's going on in politics broadly. I mean, the, the sort of tagline of it is Mitt Robinson talks about what's really going on in British politics, yeah. right? But again, what, I think what he means is like what's going on amongst the political elite. And that's a very different question to what's going on in British politics. And to me, that's that's always been the problem with the, the way that the BBC conceives of its kind of mission to explain, yeah. as, yeah. as you said. And it's... Um, and you know, it, it, it's a strange sort of thing, really. I know, but I suppose it's that tradition, you know, that has shaped Nick Robinson as a person. Like he, um, I don't know if you guys noticed that he was a sort of a protege of uh, a presenter on on the Today program when he was when he was growing up because he was he was friends of his um, son. Uh, is it Brian Redhead? Is that what I got? Oh yeah, name? I remember. Yeah, Brian, Brian Redhead, so, famous um, famous so figure. Brian yeah. Redhead was sort of a, a mentor of um, Nick Robinson because I think he was friends with with his son at school and and so you know he's always been immersed in this yeah. kind of and that's, in, that, in this kind that's of culture. A, as a sidebar there's a very interesting moment in the interview with Blair when 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 he, Robinson says to Blair my son's just in the other room listening and what would you tell him to do 
And it was like, it was a very sort of familial moment. It was like, by the way, I'm going to introduce you to my son after the interview. <laughs> right? Do you know what I mean? There's a sense that we all, you know, we, we get along by getting along. And I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of go beyond the evidence. But it was striking that he, his son was there in the circle. Oh, yeah, to be fair, I didn't in, in like the Jack Blair Mom one, on he's the just talking earlier, about. So. <laughs> in the Blair one, he's just talking about the fucking bodyguard. Just you know, it's just like yeah, oh, we've yeah, no, no, that's all been right. watching that's this great TV show. And then he asks Blair about the bodyguard. That's right, he does. Like, yeah, but that's yeah, interesting, isn't Blair, it? Because Blair said he'd never seen it. Um, yeah, as you say, the, as you say, like, the side, watching it. This model of politics is something that you you convey information about to the people. Um ends up being governed by quite a sort of a, a sort of celebrity scale of value, right? I'm sure Robinson's really pleased that he's got both Blair and Major to appear on his programme. If you think about like the Graham Norton bookers, they're going for the big Hollywood stars, right? Who are the big names in politics in that world, right? So for, yeah. him, for him to get him on the show. But what's I think also going on is that someone like Major, who's doubtless kind of communicating with Blair, or Blair's people are talking to Major's people, whatever, and they think, yeah, actually, this is a really good platform to personalise. You, you can soften the message. You can present yourself as a as a rounded human being, and you can get some key lines into the into the political sort of conversation. So, so Major wrote an op-ed, I think, either the day after or the same day he appeared on the podcast. And I think there's a sense that they're uh, yeah. learning to kind of coordinate something like this with other other forms of intervention. Blair's stuff about, oh, the British people will never stand for a competition between Boris Johnson on the one hand and Jeremy Corbyn on the other. That was run by the Daily Mail, it was clipped by the Daily Mail, and it was shared a lot. So there's a yeah. sense that they're learning that you like if you're gonna if you're gonna play this game of digital sound bites and, and like shaping social media conversations, something like Robinson's podcast is a very useful platform to use as as part of a you know, a broader strategy. Well, yeah, what wasn't the Blair interview quite widely reported before the podcast even came out? So Robinson, you know, sat down with Blair. He got his quotes, and then he presumably called up the, uh, you know, like the head of BBC News or something and was like, you'll never guess what Tony Blair just said to me. She sent them a clip widely distributed around the Internet. Probably got quite a lot of people listening to his podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's... And created the news, literally created some news. Yeah. That's interesting, and he presumably, yeah, he would have, he would have worked though. He would have put in those quotes with I, I well, like, presumably, like with an implicit understanding that that's sort of the message that Blair wants to get across. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, and, and and surely, you know, he's not stupid. He can see that there's all these kind of clapped out centrist politicians like Blair, Major. I mean, Vince Cable. I'm told. He still has some kind of a career, but I've seen no evidence of it. You know, but they're all doing the rounds, desperate for any media attention to bang on about Brexit and how they're worried about Corbyn, you know? So, but Nick Robinson obviously is like, well, if they're doing the rounds in the media, then I've almost got to have them on, haven't I? Oh, no. So, I, think, I, I think that in a way, probably what's going on here as much as anything is... Um, if you're trying to get so if you're trying to get people onto your podcast, obviously you want publicity, like you said earlier. And what Blair says, for some reason that remains a mystery to me, is seen as being it's, Blair's just news in, in itself, right? And whenever mm. Blair gets reported, he says something like infuriating, annoying, or like arrogant or criminal. And 
it will sort of it will be all over the news and then like people on the left just get really pissed off it's just like you know just fuck off and and then and then you get people sort of snide sort of comments in response you know like um oh you know can't tolerate opinions that you don't agree with blah blah, blah. you get that a lot we that. know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any dissent <laughs> we, we know that it's a, it's it's a, been a well-known fact for a while now and but <laughs> But the, the thing is that there's this kind of feeling amongst, you know, the circuits of opinion that something that Tony Blair says is of itself significant because he said it. And that therefore, it, it yeah, it's like, like you were saying earlier, Dan, about this, um, who is significant and who is kind of allowed to speak and who can, can make news. So from Nick Robinson's perspective, it's not just that they're clapped out of politicians, it's he knows that the rest of the media will consider what Tony Blair says in his podcast as being significant. And then if you get, you know, an article in The Guardian and The Daily Mail, I mean, they've got a phenomenally high um, pickup online. It, it will give you great publicity for a podcast. I don't know what kind of listenership Nick has. I mean, I'd imagine it might even be higher than um, The Real Politics. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. Um, I think, in fact, on, on uh, you know, speaking of that, there's one from December 2017 that um, has, in, has piqued my interest that I haven't listened to, but it's called The Unusual George Osborne One. Uh, and in this, George Osborne interviews Nick. Wow, really turn the tables there. But I imagine oh God, I that, that, yeah, George Osborne is another one of these people who, to you or I, seems like a clapped out, you know, disgraced centrist politician desperate for any media attention he can get despite having his very own media outlet um but to nick robinson he's obviously like oh well if george osborne like says something mildly disparaging about the prime minister then uh, oh yeah that will be, be you know, yeah. headlines yeah that kind of thing of um and I, I think this is what gives rise actually uh tension between like uh sections of the political elite it's, it's one of the things that gives rise to this sort of um a slightly misleading feeling amongst political journalists that actually they are an antagonistic force that, that, that what Nick Robinson is doing isn't you know is making life difficult for politicians and the reason they do that and I think there's a sort of grain of truth in it is that within political factions and this is as true of Corbynism as it was for Blairism or is for even different segments of the Tory party there'll be people who don't get on with each other and you don't make that public because basically you're on the same team right and Nick Robinson made it his mission when uh, Blair was in government to expose the tensions between Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, who, for all intents and purposes, were exactly the same political team, but didn't really get on and had slightly, you know, very different sort of cliquey political networks that they surrounded themselves with and, you know, briefed the media and so on. And he, I think that um, for Nick Robinson, what he was trying to do for that whole decade of Blair in power was trying to get bring to people's attention these basically inconsequential political tensions between different factions at the top of the British state and seeing that as being a journalistic duty. And there was one moment that, that stood out for me in this the Tony Blair one, uh, which was when Nick Robinson just slipped back into this. Like, uh, I don't know if you guys remember it, but he talked to, Tony Blair talked about people trying to undermine him when he was prime minister and Nick Robinson sort of quips in there with, and not all of them, based in number number. Oh yeah, no, I remember that. Yeah, I remember, and that and, was uh, sort of. And like Blair just sort of did a slightly tired kind of laugh or something, but it was like 
it, it was such a weird moment because it was like, who is that joke for? Because actually it's not really for Tony Blair because he probably doesn't find that that funny. Yeah. I don't really know why anyone would. Um, I mean, maybe there are people who are like, you know, phenomenal political anorites listening to the show thinking, oh, brilliant. But it's not even at this stage, you know, like um, it doesn't really have any sort of public educational or like, you know, public ethos to it. But it, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? Where like, what, once you're so close to these people, even the tiniest personal tensions but seem to be, you know, from the perspective of Nick Robinson, something which you need to draw out and make public. And that's how you start to feel as an embedded journalist, actually, one, that you're doing something publicly significant, yeah. and two, you're not, you're not part of their clique because they don't want you to do this, you know. And I think this is an effect that you get with any situation like this, where when you get when you get up close, all the differences seem much more significant, and he's just trying to tease them out. Yeah. And that's kind of how he does journal. That's how he does political journalism. So when people from the outside say, "Oh, you know, you're you're buddyish with these people." In his head, he's made Tony Blair's life difficult by asking him about Gordon Brown every day. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a really, <laughs> that's a really Iraq, useful you know, point, that, isn't it? That, yeah. that's, he was like, well, I, I've obviously uh, made the Tony Blair squirm in the number of press conferences by constantly going on about right. <laughs> Gordon Brown or whatever. What did they say about, about Iraq? No. I can't remember anything about Iraq from the Blair interview. I'm sure they mentioned it at some point, but... You know, it can't have been yeah, very I, memorable. I, I, no, that's right. I, I think I think it is mentioned in passing, but yeah, it's not. Um, you know, it's not treated as one of the great crimes of the um, of the early twentieth century, is it? No. What I find is, is it, it's so bizarre when he chooses to take his confrontational approach. So when he gets Caroline Lucas on because she's a bit left-wing, obviously he's got to bring up the fact that she's middle-class and kind of you know, be like, this is some glaring contradiction. Right. Why are you not... Does he do that with Jess Phillips, by the way? Did you say it was a uh, Well, no, because I imagine he's uh, he's accepted the, the, the false news line for um, Jess Phillips' is working class. Well, uh, right. <laughs> I might have swallowed that whole. I think that the, I think the fact she has a, a Birmingham accent is like it allow it allows people to position her as a sort of almost like an avatar of like ordinary folk straight talking mm. ordinary folk um it literally says the straight talking brummy that's, that's right. how she's introduced yeah. in the, in the uh, description yeah. and that, nick, but nick by the way is, i mean he's an he's an northerner and i i'm sure i heard something years ago where he described himself as a difficult or gobby northerner which is not how i sort of thought of him but he, he's definitely seen himself in that I mean rightly or wrongly he's, he's definitely is, um, seen himself in that mold as well uh, yeah well there's an interesting moment when he's like I think in the introduction to the Paris Lees interview where he's talking about how he doesn't feel quite at home in Westminster because although he went to mm. a fee-paying school in Oxford he didn't go to like Eton and therefore, like he feels a sort of degree of like cringe about. I think George Osborne didn't George Osborne feel the same way at one stage when he was bullied at um, some school because he didn't because he wasn't like a billionaire or something. Right, right. His dad, <laughs> his dad was only a baronet or something, right? So <laughs> yeah, the idea that the idea that um, yeah, these ti- these sort of tiny gradations within a, a very small privileged class, like it's a tiny group of people. Um, 
relative to the rest of the population. And yet within it, there are these infinite distinctions. And again, Can I just I say, there's actually quite an interesting thing about this, because um, it's, it's maybe a slightly different point, but if you look at the um, spread of wealth, you can see this. So, like, the further, you up, the further you get up the wealth spectrum, you know, once you get into the top decile and top 1%, top 0.1%, yeah. the, the higher the difference, income difference is, and the wealth would be even more extreme, I think, between the people you're likely to rub shoulders with. So... If you're around the median to the bottom of the um, income scale, you're mainly going to know people who earn roughly what you do. Yeah. But as you move up into the elite, yeah. actually, you, you're, you're likely to know somebody who earns four times what yeah. you earn, yeah. who went to a much, much, much better school than you. Yeah. And then that's what creates this sort of effect where, um, and I say this, you know, this, this works for people... Um, in the upper middle classes as well, you know, the professional classes, because your immediate clique um, becomes less less equal. And yet, yeah. the effect becomes even more extreme, even when you get into, like, the 0.1%. So not all of this is delusion. Like, actually, it does reflect how... Um, how yeah, rewards a, a distribute, yeah. Sort of effect. And it um, means that people can sort of position themselves as sort of plucky underdogs. Um, mm. Because they only went to a minor public school in Oxford, or you know, they they only they only did this and not that sort of thing. Um, Their but, mum was only chair of some NHS trust. Right. Dad was a now, teacher. <laughs> so, so the Phillips interview was interesting from any number of angles. One of the things that struck me was how he gave her an opportunity, essentially, to reposition herself as being sort of temperamentally on the left. Right. So she <laughs> yeah. claimed. Well, actually, the interesting thing about Jess Phillips, sorry, very quickly, is sure. that she has not rebelled very many times in Parliament. She is rhetorically one of the biggest rebels against Jeremy Corbyn. But in terms of actual substance, in terms of the times that she has defied the Labour whip in Parliament, uh, um, she's not representative of a significant rebel faction within the PLP. Like, she doesn't rebel against the party on the Brexit votes. Oh, that's and interesting. Yeah. barely anything else. That is interesting. I kind so of... So actually, yeah, so what Dan was saying earlier about uh, media personalities, I mean, that suggests she's even less representative of a significant faction of the Labour Party. Yeah, yeah, no, that oh, does... Yeah. That undercuts, yeah, that undercuts what I, what I was sort of spitballing about. Um... No, no, I, I, I think it supports it because, to an extent because it's, you know, if, if the rationale for having her was that she supports, she represents faction of Labour, well, it doesn't even sound like she does, um, it doesn't even sound like, even on that basis, she should be seen as a um, as representative because she's, yeah, um, and that's interesting, isn't it? Like the, yeah. Yeah, go on, Jack, I sort of cut, cut. Oh. No, I, I was just going to say, I think a lot of her objections to Corbynism are uh, sort of cosmetic. Yeah, but, but she finds the way that Corbynistas conduct themselves in her mentions on Twitter to be uh, unpleasant. I think that's um, right. That she I... doesn't like the tone of some of her rhetoric. I think that it's more that than, than objecting to the policies, because I don't think she's a person of much substance, frankly. Well... Yeah, I mean, she's certainly, like, at one point she says we, it shouldn't just be about one old man or whatever. And I think the idea that Corbynism is a sort of boys' project um, partly, perhaps partly explains her animus. I, I wanted to quickly to sort of note the way, the, the one tough question that I thought Robinson asked her was to say, you were completely wrong about Corbynism. 
Because you said it was doomed and it would fail electorally and it didn't. And that was the only moment where she was sort of put to any sort of, like, not even hostile questioning, but like pointed questioning. And she was, again, just able to sort of skip away and say, oh, well, he didn't win completely. Um, And anyway, I grew up reading Chomsky. So I'm sort of on the left myself, right? Um, I, I think Jess Phillips has written more books than she's read. Well, right. And the, but, but what was interesting was when... Because I listened to that one, I think just after I listened to the interview with Paris Lees. Where, yeah. Now what, now, what has really struck me about that, and I know you, you, you listened to that, Jack, as well, and we'll have things to say, but, but one of the things that really struck me is there was some, some sort of after-interview recordings about how it went when he's talking to Paris about the interview and he says to her well one of the most influential newspapers in the country is, is full of this sort of you know controversy over self-identification it's not my job yeah. to ignore that he says right so he thinks that his job is to listen to what the Murdoch press are saying and then bring that into bring that into a broader conversation and yet the only the only critique that he he presents to Jess Phillips is one that's simply about reality, right? Yeah. At no point does he say to her, there's a significant body of opinion in the Labour Party that thinks that centrism is dead, it hasn't got any argu- ideas, but he doesn't present that case, which mm. you would think is intellectually significant if you're going to talk to us, like you're going to talk about political thought with a centrist, you would want to make the case for their opponents, right? But he doesn't do that. Yeah. He's not interested in doing that. What he's interested in doing is is taking bile from the Times, like crazy op-ed bullshit from the Times, and then pres- sort of throwing that at, at someone like Paris Lees. And then afterwards he says, well, I, I can't ignore this, right? And what this, what's really striking about that is it says, if you're a billionaire and you pay for a loss-making national newspaper in this country... You, and you put enough money into it to keep the kind of uh, keep up appearances, right? So your columnists can afford to eat in nice restaurants. They can afford to live in central London. If you put in that investment, you can shape the content of the BBC. Yeah, uh, that reminds me of something that on uh, what I believe is sort of your sister podcast. No, not really. A kind of inferior version of your podcast, the BBC do, called I think just the Media Podcast, um, presented media by show. I, the I'm Media. Not... Sh- I'm Tom. not sure. I'm not sure we've heard of that, have we, Tom? <laughs> um, actually, <laughs> I think we. I think we've mentioned it as a as a, a rival that's out there. Um, yeah, we certainly not endorsed it in any way. No, and I think yeah, they are. So, so, I think they're unhealthily obsessed by us. To be fair, but carry on. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, these guys are parking their t- tanks on your lawn. Well, but exactly. aside from that, um, Amal Rajan, hosting an episode of that, said to Paul Mason when Mason objected to. Uh, Murdoch's hegemony over British media. Amal Rajan protested, but are you saying you have a problem with Rupert Murdoch losing tens of millions of pounds investing in quality journalism? (laughs) Have you read these fucking papers, mate? Like, as you say, Dan, and the Times is just full of the most, like, sickening anti-trans bile. Um, But, I mean, (laughs) if you saw somebody like standing on a street corner I mean maybe it's true with most political ideas that if someone was yelling about them on a street corner (laughs) you would take them less seriously but um, I mean just they you see the same views as you see in these articles on Twitter um, and they don't come across well when these people turn up 
Yeah, no, by the way, um, having, having... So, sorry, uh, Alan Al- 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 Rajan, he used to edit the um, Independent, and Jenny Lebedev, who um, tweeted at one stage, like, so he, he appeared before Leveson, and then he tweeted afterwards, I forgot to tell Leveson, it's unreasonable to expect individuals to spend millions of pounds on a newspaper and not have access to politicians. <laughs> Very public about it. So wow. it was like, you know, they're, they're not, they know what they're doing. Like, you know, this was, this actually, you know, Lebedev, who bought the Independent, was doing it in order to shore up political capital in the UK. And, you know, that, and, and they're, they're pretty open about it. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and yeah, you're absolutely right, Dan. I mean, about, you know, it's very clear the way that um, the press shapes the BBC. Um, there's plenty of, plenty of research on it. But again, it's this sort of, I suppose it comes back to this basic assumption that, you know, the, the institutions, the institutions of our democracy are themselves sort of, uh, are basically fine. What we need to do is sort of explore and understand them and allow the public to be more engaged with them. And that, to me, seems to be, you know, the Nick Robinson project, basically. Um, and say, problem, but he's also aware, I think, that people hold them in a very low regard. So there's obviously tension there. So go on, Jack. Yeah. Well, I think that the for me, the overriding message of Nick Robin, political thinking with Nick Robinson is uh, why can't we all just get along? You know, it's very much like there has been this uh, decline of civility in politics. There's, there's, there's been a when you know it's like all, all the melty articles you see in the New Statesman or whatever. When did politics get toxic? <laughs> like I believe you re, you read that one on your show. We um, did, yeah, we did. And uh, yeah, like, I enjoyed that episode by the way. And um, yeah, and and it and it's just kind of like it's such a Westminster centric view to see the problem as not what the MPs are voting for, but what's appearing in the MP's uh, Twitter mentions, you know? Um, and and so he goes to to everyone. That's when he, why he asked Dawn Butler that thing in her episode. Like, uh, you know, I've had Jacob Rees-Mogg and Jess Phillips on here being best of friends. Uh, uh, who are your Tory friends? And to her credit, I don't think Dawn Butler names one. But, um, but, but then that is its most horrifying representation is in the Paris Lees interview where for the, I'd say the entire second half of the thing he's really kind of pressuring her with this kind of well Paris why can't you just be a little bit nicer to people who you know say you're a man and uh, scream about penises at you and uh, all, all the lovely things that uh, trans exclusionary feminists do um, and, it, and it's kind of like it's just bizarre. It's so disconnected from reality or from, from the reality that, that trans people like Paris Lees live, um, that, that he, he's, he sees the issue of that somebody who writes hateful bile about a persecuted minority group in a national newspaper is not getting the respect they deserve. And he has one person from this group on and he has to hold her accountable for the actions of, you know, every single transgender or pro-transgender activist in the country. 
I think this is like it, it, it speaks to a broader sort of um, position that you see with this kind of journalism as well, which is uh, you know a, a great willingness to interrogate and hold to account people who are further from the centres of power. Mm. You know, and so they're quite they're very good at interrogating um, the left, and often they take their attack lines from the press. But in a way, you can see a certain sort of excitement around sections of, you know, the more elite um, players in journalism when they actually get an opportunity to do a number on, you know, uh, Corbyn or McDonald or any other or representative of, you know, oppressed groups because it allows them to really go to town on somebody in a way that actually is to come back and bite them on the arse. Um, and, and also... I suppose it must be liberating in a way to be a bit more loose and careless with your language with somebody who doesn't have the power to call out your boss and say, what the fuck was that? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And in a way, in a funny way, it allows you to do your job as a journalist uh, as soon as you divorce anything from any understanding of of power or democratic accountability. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things I think, and I've noticed it a bit with... um, you know, certain sections of the BBC where they seem to feel that strongly that their their job is to hold the opposition to account. Yes. Now, in some ways, you know, that that's in some, you know, on one level, that's sort of fine because the opposition, you know, are supposed to represent a section of the public. But on the other hand, if you think constitutionally speaking, the point of the opposition is supposed to be to hold the government account. So in some sense, you could make an argument that, you know, the BBC, it would be legitimate for the BBC to take lines from the opposition to the government, but you do, actually you don't you don't see that. And so the way that the BBC, or maybe we're getting off Rob, Nick Robinson a bit, but the way they seem to do this is mainly we take our lines from uh, Tory rebels and from the newspapers, and that's the basis on which we um, question ministers. And that's not a recent thing. I mean, that's been going on for a long, long time, you know, which is uh, you you look to again, sort of uh, fractures within the political elite. And that's how you question the political elite. And when it comes to everybody else, um, it's just, it seems to be like an, yeah, um, open field, basically. Well, right, you can't imagine, you can't imagine Robinson saying, you know, clearly it would be remiss not to discuss Iraq, given that a large number of people in Britain think you're a war criminal. Right. <laughs> it's true. I mean, no. that, it, like, and that's like again, it's like well, the Times isn't saying he's a war criminal, so I don't have to address that, right? The well, fact even that the Guardian's not saying it. even the Guardian. So like, however many no, million on, on people, the far left, yeah, how yeah. many millions on <laughs> the far the left? Statesman doesn't bring this up. I mean, um, Tom, you were talking about where they get their opinions. You know, BBC journalists like Nick Robinson. I'm very fucking interested in where he got some of his opinions. He expressed in the Paris Lees episode, because some of it was so, like, boneheadedly offensive. The bit that sticks in my mind was he, he talked about... Um, I'm, I'm trying to think how he phrased it. It, it definitely started with blokes. It was oh, something yeah, he like, used the word blokes, blokes in dresses or something like that. Blo- blokes getting a sex change and going into women's changing rooms and molesting people, or something like that. Um, just, just this idea that, uh, you know... A, a, man has horrible, violent, perverted sexual urges and is just like, well, better go and transition then. Where is he getting this stuff? It's 
absolute kind of crank conspiracy theorist stuff you know um and the way he phrased it was so tactless you could hear paris lee's just like some bloke getting a sex change you know what i mean it was um yeah, no, it's astonishing. You know, that was an astonishing yeah, no, bloke, bloke is a very um yeah it's, it's sort of like a it's a notable word to use isn't it like yeah same bloke rather than man you know what i mean yeah, yeah. No, it's a very, very peculiar. I have to say, I thought, I thought, yeah. um, I thought Paris held, held it together incredibly well. I thought she was a yeah. really, really great advocate for, for her cause. And, but you're right. The way the sort of, <clears throat> as you say, Tom, there's a certain sort of, like looseness and sort of excitement that that comes over these people when they finally get to have a go at someone who can't, can't really fight back in the same way. <laughs> Because, you know, the trans lobby isn't going to call up his boss and be like, you're never going to get another big interview with... Do you know what I mean? Like, they don't have that sort of leverage. Um, and so he can afford to be confrontational. About someone... T- it's one of those things, isn't it? There, if, if it's someone like that, the BBC are doing you a favour having you on. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, if, you're, if you kick up a fuss, then, you know, that's what we do. We're journalists. Don't come on if you don't like it kind of thing. And of course... Yeah. Everybody else, um, in actual fact, I mean, and this will now include um, people around Corbyn, are in a position to say, why the fuck would we go on your podcast? Um, yeah, absolutely. You, know, you need us. Um, and that's what the sort of, the, you know, that social power gives you. And that that was the basis on which, yeah, like, um, you know, Alistair Campbell was bullying all these people for a number of years, which was, was to... You know, be able to say to them, I will be able to affect, you know, I will be able to decide whether you rise or fall in your industry. And obviously, people who don't normally get news access also don't have any ability to shape, you know, other people's careers. Yeah. But um, I suppose it's not something which um, it would be good to talk about publicly on your own podcast either. But if we, luckily, um, we don't have careers in the media or any money so it's not an issue yeah no we've i've certainly we're open about these things jack of all the ones you listen to do you have a favorite episode one that you actually enjoyed one that i actually enjoyed well i mean i thought in terms of interviewees coming off well uh, i thought ed Miliband was very kind of open about the fact that he maybe should have ran on a more left-wing platform when he was labor leader mm-hmm. um I don't. Uh, I, I mean, I don't think. Oh no! I've I've just turned on the podcast by accident. Um, <laughs> that's that how that. keen you are. I was going to say <laughs> you you're bored of us now, and you want to listen to some more Nick Robinson. Is that what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's been away for the, he's been away for the podcast for too long. He's just been getting re- <laughs> restless, and uh, I've got to get my Nick fix. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I no, I thought. I mean. The conditions were not there when Ed Miliband was leader for him to be more left wing. For example, you know, his shadow cabinet and all his advisors were very right wing. Um, but he, he sort of, uh, yeah, I thought he came came across quite well talking about his own podcast. So it was, I guess, a little bit meta, um, you know, a podcast about a podcast, kind of like this one. Um, uh, I... So just to complete the uh, web of um, yeah, but none of us, none of us yet, none of us yet have appeared on political thinking. 
No, no, not yet. No. So, uh, and the, you know, there is a sweepstake. Who's going to make it first? Um, <laughs> well, uh, Nick, if you're listening, who's going like, to come back on and be like, um, actually, I really like Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Nick, come, if, like, if you're, you're listening, only one of us is the real. Yeah. <laughs> Only one of us is the real political thinking head here. Yeah, no, it's true, Jack. You are yeah. you are a fan. Right. You are a deep, like deeply committed fan. I would say on, on favorite episodes, I wouldn't listen to the one with Liz Tr- Liz Truss. It's really dull. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet. Um, you know what? What was really fucking boring? Chuckers one. Oh, I haven't heard uh, that one. Don't, don't don't listen to that. Yeah. The whole Brexit section. Oh that. God. Um, anyway, so there oh, you go. We need to do another show about Chucko and his uh, new think tank. Oh, Maybe yeah, no, he's, um, um, do we know who funds it yet? No, let, let's, oh, could we string that out to an entire podcast? No, we I can't. I feel like we can talk about this. We should talk about think tanks more generally, though, and, and we could talk about... Actually, yeah, let's do, let's do a show on think tanks, and um, we can talk a bit about Chucko and his £65,000 a year for, like, what was it, like two days a month's work or something? Well, give me a... Well, the hard-remain lot have money coming out of their asses. I mean, like, uh, there was there was four full-page adverts for a quote-unquote people's vote sure. in the Evening Standard the other day, which someone calculated altogether would cost about half a million quid. Oh so, OK, just before we sign off then, guys, we sure we don't want to pivot to being a Remain podcast? Because... <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just. I know, like, when when to sell out is a thorny issue. That we 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 will not sell out for anything less than fifty pounds. Um, <laughs> just to be, if anyone's listening and they're thinking of buying buying up the show, um, you got to start pretty big for us. Okay, you've got it. You've got to pay for our SoundCloud account for a whole year. Yeah. Are you just going to get subsumed into Amol? Jan's media show. Yeah, that, yeah exactly. We, we could do a sort of, um, yeah, he could be sort of, you know how like Jacobin did their podcast and then they just absorbed all the other sort of disparate left uh, podcasts out. And we, we'd be very happy to be hoovered up. Raise the stakes, maybe a hundred pounds, 50 pounds each. Yeah, no, 50, always. <laughs> Got to go double. Sorry, Jack. Oh, I was going to say, I actually do have one more, um, recommendation i mean tom watson's i would recommend because of just how actually no i wouldn't most of it's just boring shit about how he's lost weight um the bits where he says how scared he is of len mccluskey are pretty funny but i would recommend andy burnham's one right because he's such like a slimy figure you know (laughs) i don't even kind of dislike him that much but he's like he just comes across as so sort of i don't know so like dishonest (laughs) it's just some, something he, performative. He, um, he uh, a few years ago, you know, before this whole Corbyn thing kicked off, I was at an NHS um, demonstration or rally or whatever, yeah. and he spoke, and he was, you know, he was really good. But as soon as he mm. stepped up, just the look of him, you know, he looked like an American politician. There was just something about the way he did his hair, and it was like he just <laughs> didn't look right at, you know, even amongst like, you know, the sort of posh junior doctors who were speaking. He just stood out, you know, with a sort of suit and his shiny hair, and and he just didn't seem, you know, how like particularly at that time in the the sort of Miliband era, politicians just didn't seem like 
people. And um, yeah. to some extent, some of them do a bit more now. I mean, even on the right, but particularly on the left. But he was just one of them. You know, like, and before he started speaking, I was like, I, I can just see straight away that you're, that you're a politician. And that's just a weird thing, you know, to be able to spot someone. It's like when you, you know how you can always, you always know who in a, he's an estate agent when you see them yeah. in yeah. the high street. So just don't <laughs> look right. And it's like that, but like on a much more, uh, on a much sort of higher level. It's, it's, sort of, it's not it's right, really. Per- performative normality. Um, yeah, I mean, Burnham doing a favourite biscuit was and he said oh I just like chips and gravy um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, what I liked in his episode of Political He's Thinking I liked, yeah I liked his two kind of joint his sort of twin towers of resentment he's got first of all he's not a proper mank second of all he lost the leadership to Jeremy Corbyn in 2015 and he's like He's, like, pissed off at everyone about losing to Jeremy Corbyn in 2015. Like, he says to Nick Robinson, like, oh, I think I was punished for my loyalty because oh, <laughs> right. he, uh, right. he didn't quit the Shadow Cabinet. Uh, and he says that, I think Harriet Harman treated me very unfairly. And he's, <laughs> he's, he's got, in fact, he's, he's uh, probably less, uh, less sort of bitter towards Corbyn himself than he is towards... Uh, um, yeah, to, towards Harriet Harman, but then he comes out with this kind of bullshit anti-Corbyn line that oh, Labour's last manifesto was all for the middle classes because it was going to you know scrap tuition fees. So um, I think he's learned some lessons. I think he's not learned others, but um, that yeah, I found that one fairly entertaining. As as they go, it's all relative. None of them are that entertaining. Yeah, yeah. It is an well, acquired um, taste. Jack, you've done um, Media Democracy and the listeners and the public at large a service by, <laughs> with, your, uh, with your martyrdom. So um, thanks, <laughs> Thank you. thanks for, for um, yeah, wading through all the episodes and giving us the lowdown. And yeah, thanks for coming on Media Democracy. It's been, it's been fun. Oh, no, I really appreciate it, guys. I'm a big fan of the show, and thank you for having me on. Not at all. Pleasure to chat. Thanks for joining us.